0: at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening, everybody. We welcome you tonight to this service. We're glad that you're here. Very glad that you're here. In fact, Scripture reading tonight. Where are we these days? Well, we're in Second Chronicles. Let's see which bookmark is that? <laughs> this brown one. Yes, we're in chapter 30. Hezekiah. Uh, we've been reading uh, about him in chapter 29, and we'll continue in chapter 30 uh, with a little better, a little better feeling about things uh, with Hezekiah trying to uh, honor the Lord, and uh, so tells us in chapter 30 of Second Chronicles, if you'd follow along, please. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Notice how he's extending an olive branch and a hand to those that are far away, those that are in the northern tribes, to get them to come and be obedient to God. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. Why? For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. You remember that was a problem from the last chapter. They had so many sacrifices, and there weren't enough priests, so the Levites had to help them do the work that they were supposed to do with the sacrifices. So... They were a little short-handed and had to get things uh, ramped up. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly, verse 4 says, then 5. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, that is from the south to the north, that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel... Return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn from you. May I just pause at the end of verse 8 there and ask if there's any area in which you have been stiff-necked, let God uh, work on your heart by the Spirit of God and challenge you to change that approach to life. Uh, Whatever area it is, stiff-necked to some authority in your life, stiff-necked to your God, uh, not wanting to do what you know that you should be doing, Bend, just be flexible as it were and yield yourself to the Lord is the advice here. Verse 9, for if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn His face from you if you return to Him. Draw near to God, in other words, and He will draw near to you It, uh, you know... Don't, it's not, this is not the best way to say it, but kind of works every time you try it because it's a promise that God has made, talked to us about in many places in Scripture, and James there for sure. Verse 10, So the runners passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, and, but, oh, but they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So be prepared, my friends, for people to mock you and laugh at you when you say that you believe, but it's only to their own hurt, and don't let that hinder you from carrying on the work of God. Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. May God give us that as well, the hand of God upon us. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the fourteenth day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. May I just add this? Uh, I don't fully understand all the ins and outs of the purification rituals. I think all of us find it a little bit you know, different, like, we just kind of go to church and you know go home and don't have to worry about cleanliness or uncleanliness ceremonially and all that. Maybe you know I mean obviously I think we should confess our sins and especially like when we come to the Lord's table we feel that way that we should uh, you know address our sins that uh, have not been confessed. But sometimes when you get yourself into such a fix like these people did, it's almost like you have to, what's the word? There's a a point at which you just have to kind of break through and start serving the Lord. You can't get yourself fixed up enough to get yourself right before God. You just have to say, look, God, I'm casting you on, I'm casting myself on your mercy. And they were so messed up. And that's what sin does. It takes you into such an area sometimes that you can't get straightened out without just casting yourself on, on the mercy and forgiveness of God and, and on others and, and just have to trust God that, you know, like in this case, that he's not going to strike you with lightning because you did the wrong thing. I mean, God did do some things in past history to people that mistreated the uh, tabernacle, right? Remember Aaron's sons and this strange fire, the unauthorized uh, offering of you know, fire that they made and all of that. So just be aware sometimes if you get yourself into such a pickle that you just have to just kind of break through it and just say, look, I'm just going to start serving the Lord. I, I can't, you know, like reform myself and perfect myself until somehow I'm, I'm right before God. It doesn't work that way. You need God's cleansing and forgiveness. And God listened to Hezekiah and healed the people in this case. Uh, the intentions of their hearts were to get to the right direction, but, you know, they were way off into the, into the ditch, and to get back on the right road took them some doing. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord, and they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, and they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, also the priests and the Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, to heaven. I just rejoice to hear those words. (laughs) Thank God for that. Um, A little homework for you, maybe, uh, that second to last verse, just... Try to figure out the, the date of uh, Solomon and the year in which these events may have occurred and then just you know figure out what's the distance of time. Are we talking how many hundreds of years, how many tens of years between these? I think that would be interesting little piece of homework for you to tackle and to look at. Okay, well, uh, let me uh, ask you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26, and as you turn there, let me just commend to you uh, the uh, ministry that Brother Jansen is uh, doing on uh, Sunday mornings, the last two weeks, and uh, at least next week he'll continue his series, uh, I think, until Brother James comes back and gets back into his uh, routine, but uh, in his teaching slot there. I just want to commend that ministry to you. Jansen and I have been spending a goodly amount of time thinking about these matters of evangelism and trying to uh, assist him and him to assist us to do the work that we're called to do. Uh, I'd like to see us have uh, Sunday night services uh, packed up to the gills with people who are new believers or uh, people that newly find this church and need to be instructed in the Word and can benefit from just straight-up exposition of the Word, training, discipleship, uh, you know, keep, uh, keep us busy with one-on-one discipleship meetings, and uh, you uh, don't be surprised when uh, we ask some of you to take up some of those meetings as well. You know, we've done that with some of you, and, and you can do that with others and have done in the past. So I just commend that ministry to you and uh, ask you to participate wholeheartedly uh, in it. It's very, very important for the life of our church and any church, in fact. Well, we turn our attention to Matthew 26, and uh, we've had enough of the um, exposition of the Olivet Discourse. I, I know I could have spent more time on some aspects of it, but I don't want to necessarily get bogged down in the details, and certainly not in speculations about uh, what's going to happen and all the things that people get caught up in when they're talking about uh, prophetic uh, kinds of preaching. And so it's time for us to move on for now, at least. And uh, we're moving into 26. and the text says this. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, So we're coming to a shift a changeover in uh, the Lord's focus and in his ministry. The public ministry has come to an end now. He will spend more time with the disciples in a private meal and meeting. Uh, John's gospel takes up much more of this in detail because John chapter 12 is the end of his public ministry, 13 and 14 and so on. To the end of the book then cover the last supper and uh, those discourses and then the crucifixion, resurrection accounts. So many more chapters are given to that there. However, we have a couple of very long chapters in front of us in chapter 26 and chapter 27. So we're not going to lack for any uh, details. But uh, the chapter ends in 26, way down the line at verse 75, just before that, the Lord is condemned to die. And uh, in the in a you know what is a shocking turn of events if you're not paying attention to what the Lord's reason for coming was. Um, so these, these things are now unfolding, and uh, he's, he said to his disciples, verse 2, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her then one of the 12 called judas iscariot went to the chief priests and said what are you willing to give me if i deliver him to you and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver so from that time he sought opportunity to betray him the calendar said that there was two more days until the passover was to happen and the Lord prophesied that he would be crucified at that time, coinciding with the Passover in God's plan. Why? Because Christ was the ultimate sacrificial lamb who takes away sin. We saw this uh, when we studied John's gospel. Think back to John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the fulfillment or anti-type of the type of, Of the Passover. So the Passover was a pattern, if you will, or is used as a pattern, and that pattern is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the first Passover, the second. The original Passover was a remembrance of God's deliverance from Egypt and from bondage there. The new Passover is a remembrance of God's deliverance from sin and from the punishment of sin and its bondage through Jesus Christ, which He accomplished through. His self sacrifice. Because uh, of the number of participants in the feast, uh, thousands of Jews coming to Jerusalem, and the number of days uh, that are, if you kind of trace through the numbers of the days in the Passion Week, there's some confusion and, and difference about exactly when the Passover was. Was it Thursday or was it Friday? I won't get into all the details of that. I, I believe the Lord died right around the time of the evening sacrifice on Passover when the Passover lamb was killed. Some have su- suggested Thursday for this. Most Christians accept Friday. Um, I've put some effort into this a number of years ago, but haven't spent a lot of time reviewing it lately. But I don't think the exact uh, you know minutes and day uh, matter in this situation, uh, nor... And this could be a possibility. There could have been, because there were so many people, there could have been two days in which the Passover was celebrated, uh, Thursday and Friday. Um, In fact, wasn't it Friday morning when the uh, priests went in? Well, they didn't go into Pilate. They wouldn't go in there because why? They wanted to celebrate the Passover? Yeah, so... Uh, That that seems to be the day, but in any case, God's worked out all those details. It's like, though, this prophecy that the Lord gives is the final gate that opens for the plan of his self-sacrifice to unfold, because it says, after he said that he will be delivered up to be crucified, I think the kind of metaphorical gate opens, and then the chief priests plotted together as to how to kill him. At least that's how Matthew portrays this happening. So the chief priests, it says, the scribes and the elders of the people went about fulfilling the prophecy that the Lord made. Unbeknownst to them, this now was not, listen, a group of just a handful of people. I mean, we're not talking about uh, two or three or four or five people that got together and put their heads together and said, ah, we've got a great idea. We're going to get rid of this Jesus. I call this a cabal of several dozen men in the Sanhedrin council and others. Some sources tell us the Sanhedrin is 70 men. Others put the number at 23, strangely. But in any case, there were a number, a number, a large number of people um, Other highly placed Jewish authorities, not just the Sanhedrin members, were involved in this plot to get rid of Jesus. Now, some in their number did not agree with them. Do you remember their names? Some who were part of the Jewish leadership and Sanhedrin did not agree with what they were doing. One was Joseph of Arimathea, the Bible says, and the other one was the fellow who came along with him and helped to to care for the body of Jesus after the crucifixion, which was Nicodemus. Both of those men, uh, you know, weren't involved in in kind of voting, if you will, for this plot to occur. So this is some seemingly large subset of those that were on that council. Um, And you can find those in Luke 23 and John 19, uh, those references to Joseph and to Uh, Nicodemus. Perhaps the high priest, as it mentions his name here, they met at the palace of the high priest. Uh, Perhaps he called the meeting, sick as that is, that a high priest would call a meeting and have them come to his place. Something wrong about a high priest having a palace too, by the way. It just doesn't seem quite right, does it? I mean, you don't have to keep the high priest in utter poverty on a dirt floor, but... Maybe he doesn 't need to have a you know a, a, a castle <laughs> kind of a deal uh, either, so any case, um, strange, but uh, that was how that worked. It was a political position it was not just a religious uh, position. Um, I bring up this matter of the size of the group, not because the text focuses on it or tells us exactly how many but When you have these plurals, chief priests, scribes, elders of the people, and we know how big this group of people was, it highlights to me the pure evil of this act. It was agreed upon by many men who were in collusion to overthrow the future king of Israel. They were the ultimate traitors in a plot to rid themselves of this, as they saw him, unpleasant fellow who was offering salvation and a kingdom under his authority, but they perceived themselves and their authority to be threatened. And I think they didn't like to be told that they were sinners and vipers and in need of repentance because they thought they were, you know, how could they? How could their consciences allow them to do this. It reminds me of the uh, leaders in Daniel 6. I, ever, I forget how many there were. Were there 120 satraps there? And many of them got together and got the king to sign this uh, decree saying no one can a- uh, worship, not a worship, but ask, make any petition to anything, any God, any person except for him. And they get Daniel in trouble with this technicality kind of thing, and he's thrown in. All of those people I mean, can you imagine the evil of that? Why don't they just relax and take it easy? And, you know, as it turns out, they dug a pit and they fell into it. Metaphorically, again, they ended up getting the punishment that they tried to mete out to Daniel. But it's the same kind of thing where you have a large group of people agreeing together. This is human nature, friends. People do this. I bet there are people in Washington, D.C., living like this. Sick, isn't it? Malicious. They plotted together forming a malicious evil plan to seize Jesus in a deceptive or secretive operation and then to kill him. They felt it was too dangerous to do this publicly and during the Passover holiday, so they planned to do it later. You notice that? They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar uh, among the people. Well, what did God say about that? They said, not during the feast, and he said, during the feast. Okay, So they, uh, they planned, but God messed up their plan. They were afraid of the crowds. They figured the common folk were not going to be favorable to their evil because they liked what Jesus was doing for the nation with healings and teaching and so forth, they being the crowd's. Anytime you have a plot that says, look, we can't tell the people plainly what we're doing, we have to kind of get it in through, you know, the back door, subterfuge, and, and all kinds of, you know, po- political maneuvers and all of this, you know you have something wrong. You can just chalk it up. It's, it, people that do things the right way, that do right things, don't operate that way. So it is in churches, you know, when a When a clandestine move is made to change a church, that's not happening here. I'm not saying that, but I know churches where that has happened. And, you know, plot this is how you change the church to a purpose driven church by doing these, you know, steps little by little and getting rid of these people and doing this and doing that. And pretty soon, you know, before you know it, you'll have what you want. That's sick. Or coming into a church and not being forthright about your beliefs that you're going to try to change the church. When rather you should be saying, "No, I I agree with and believe the doctrinal statement and practice of the church," or if you don't, you you have to disclose that ahead of time. I mean, yes, there are there are you know possible situations where a new pastor might come in and the church might agree to change. A, A congregational church might realize, "Boy, we were wrong on X, Y, and Z. We're going to become a Baptist church now, and our pastor's leading us to do that." Super, that's great. But do it the right way. Do it honestly. Speak about it. You know, don't, don't hide and, and do things like you know, this. Oh, I fear the crowds. Well, because the crowds were more correct than you were, um, than you are. But uh, because of what we said above about the connection of the original Passover to the second Passover, God had ordained the sacrifice of the lamb to work out this way during the Passover feast on his timeline, not on their timeline. Even in their most devious plot, the Jewish leaders could not implement it as they wished. And of course, I think you understand implicitly behind the Jewish plot to get rid of Jesus was whose plot? Satan. He's animating all of this. I'm sure he didn't, you know, we couldn't, we would say that he probably didn't leave this to a backbencher, you know, to a a third string demon. Uh, He was involved in this directly, getting Jesus out of there. Wherever there's fear of man involved or the taking of poles to figure out what is right, there is a problem. If you are doing something because you're caving into peer pressure, or wanting to please people or not obeying God because of the fear of people then you know you've got to be in the wrong. It's just a very good sign that you're on the wrong track if you if you're caving into peer pressure and and you know God has one way for you and people have another way for you and you're like, "Oh, I can't I can't buck that. I've got to go that way." No, you know you're in the wrong. So that's kind of lays out the uh, the gloomy backstory to everything that's going on here, and uh, we come now to verse six, verses six through thirteen, and we see about the anointing of the Lord for burial. And I've referenced Mark fourteen in the heading of the notes there. If you have those from the website, you'll see that there are other passages as well uh, that I cite here, Luke seven and John 11 and 12. And I'll try to address those here in just a moment. The stage was set. God was permitting these wicked leaders to implement their plan, although, of course, somewhat modified in the timing of it. And the Bible tells us in verse number three, and when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And so we read that. It uh, introduces us to this woman who is going to pour out a uh, love offering on the Lord in this perfume. So he spent some time at the home of this Simon the leper. I suspect, I don't have proof directly for this, that the man was probably one of the people Jesus had healed from leprosy. Uh, Just the fact that Simon is in Bethany... And in a home is quite remarkable because if you were a leper, you weren't in the city and you weren't in your home. You were an outcast. So this is a remarkable thing that he's back in his home, back in his city uh, after his illness. Uh, And that's how I take it. Simon the leper who was not now a leper. He was one, okay. Anyways, um, so he lived in Bethany, which was the same town where Lazarus was from. Remember that? Lazarus from Bethany, Mary and Martha there as well. And Jesus had traveled there in John chapter 11 and raised up Lazarus from the dead. Now in John 12, then, there is a similar anointing event. And it says in John 12 something about the timing of this. And this really throws people for a loop. It says in John 12, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So this seems a little uh, different, doesn't it? Why? Because we just read in Matthew, after two days is the Passover, And then we have this about the anointing at Bethany. But in John, it's six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Now, we don't know how long after he came to Bethany that the uh, dinner was. Maybe they waited four days and then there was a dinner. Um, So some have said, well, these could not be the same event. Uh, Absolutely not. There were two anointings, one in John 12, one in... Matthew, and the Matthew one is pretty much exactly paralleled with Mark. Um, And so what do we do about this? Well, you could keep them separate, but the similarities are so much that I wonder if this is what's going on. Um, The events of Matthew and John 12 could be one and the same if what Matthew has done here is he's rewinded the timeline a little bit to explain something about Judas. Uh, he tells the story then immediately before he recounts the greed of Judas, which led him to sell Jesus for thirty pieces of silver. You see, a Judas is in both sections. Judas. Uh, we read from John 12, and we we know from the other Gospels, he was one of those disciples that was like, man, this could have been sold for 300 pieces of you know 300 denarii, and uh, well, he didn't care about helping the poor. All he wanted was access to the money box. You know, it's like, well, if that goes in there, I can I can have a big payday for myself. You know, and then he can't get that. So we go on to verse 14 through 16, and he's Well, it's almost like, well, I can't get the access to that, so I'm going to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I'll get something out of this deal anyways. So it may be, and you notice when I read it, I kind of paused at the end of verse 5, and my intonation was such that you might think, oh, this is kind of like scene change, going over here to this other thing that occurred. And it, it, well, could be the case. So Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and then this event uh, took place. Now... Another difference mentioned in the explanation of the event is that the woman anointed the feet of Jesus in John 12 and wiped them with her hair. Now, how do you reconcile that? Well, she could have poured most or uh, you know, the entire bottle on Jesus' head and it's running down and she's then taking some of it and anointing his feet with it and wiping with her hair or she had some drops left in the bottom of this flask and, and did that. Um, and then there are similarities uh, also with the complaint about the waste, so-called waste of this expensive perfume, and uh, the house filling with the smell of perfume. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is quite a unique situation here. This pro- it doesn't seem likely that it happened six days before and then two days before again, but I'll let you be the judge of that. There's yet another similar passage in Luke 7, But that was like a year earlier. And this happened at another Simon's house. It was Simon the Pharisee in that case, not Simon the leper. And uh, the timeline is just totally different. So we leave that one off to the side, and and, uh, I take it to be a different event altogether. So a woman comes, and if the events are the same, we know the name of this person from John 12. Uh, She took a flask of costly perfume of oil and poured out the whole thing on Jesus, particularly at the beginning here on his head as he was sitting there reclining at the table, poured it out on his head. The container was an alabaster flask. Alabaster was a stone used to make vases and jars, and uh, they could have plugged the top of this little vase so that it would be sealed and not allow any of the odor of the perfume to come out. Uh, So that it would, and it would be a kind of container that would hold it for a long time. It it wouldn't leak or soak through or whatever. It was a a kind of, you could picture almost like a marble type stone. Um, It may have come from Egypt, but it could have been locally sourced as well. Uh, Different sources tell different stories about that. But um, I think that it's likely that since the contents of the flask were expensive, Probably the flask was fairly expensive as well. You know, I mean, I, I haven't gone perfume shopping lately. <clears throat> In fact, <laughs> I've never gone perfume shopping. <laughs> but uh, anyways, um, you know, you think of a perfume that's worth this much. I mean, you're not going to buy this at Kroger's or something, right? It's going to be at some you know, high-end store and some high-end container and all of that. So it wasn't cheap. But the woman broke it open, which was an extravagant move. I wonder if she did that, maybe knowingly or not knowingly, but did that so that that flask could not be used ever again on any other person, maybe. I I don't see how the flask would have had to be broken. I mean, did she have to break it? I doubt it. I mean, it probably had a plug on the top. It was meant to be open and closed if it was that much perfume, that valuable of a perfume. Um, So, and maybe she did that uh, breaking of it open to expeditiously get at the contents of it so that she could quickly do the anointing that she was doing. The contents of the flask are uh, called nard or spike nard, Um, uh, this fragrant oil elsewhere we see it, nard or spike nard. The Song of Solomon mentions this, a couple of portions in Song of Solomon 1 and 4. The fragrance of the uh, perfume comes from the strong-smelling root of that plant, which was a perennial type of plant, and it likely was another import or an import, possibly from India. I didn't research the details on that any further, but you can if you would like to. I'm not going to be in the market for nard anytime soon, so I'll leave that for you. But the woman poured out the entire contents on Jesus, uh, and you can just kind of imagine in your mind's eye how that would be like. Like, take a a whole bottle of, of cologne or aftershave or some your favorite perfume maybe it's a bottle like this you know and you just open the top of it and just can you imagine how much it would smell the the the, how aromatic it would be uh you know imagine uh you know i mean it's running down his hair and head and face and neck can you feel the 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 drips just coming down, rolling down your your body and uh, clothing. And uh, imagine in your mind's nose, that the, that's not your mind's eye, that's your mind's nose, how the uh, house was filled with the aroma, maybe to the point of giving the occupants a headache. Have you ever, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, o- overdone perfume can just be like, oh, I need some fresh air. <laughs> um, Of course, I don't know exactly what this smelled like. Maybe it was a very pleasant kind of uh, aroma. But Judas then raised a complaint and seems to have been joined by several other disciples. Uh, and, And you might initially kind of chalk this up to their frugal nature or practical tendencies, but it appears that it's more than that. They were indignant, calling this act of worship a waste, because the perfume was worth a year's wages, more or less. At least for Judas, we know that he was afflicted with greed and thievery, John chapter 12 tells us, and he wanted the money more than he wanted to worship Jesus or to see others worship him. Judas was a deceiver, he was a non-believer. And there's almost no, no greater contrast that could be made than between Judas on the one hand and the woman on the other. Can you think of a greater contrast? Somebody who hates Jesus will sell him for 30 pieces of silver and somebody who loves him and will pour out a year's worth of wages uh, on him because he is worthy. He was indeed, she understood, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And if indeed this is Mary... She knew firsthand that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Martha, her sister, would have told her what Jesus told her, and they would have, you know, known about each other, what what each other's interaction with Jesus was all about. They were eyewitnesses of that. Uh, They knew that He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He was the long awaited Messiah of Israel and worthy of their highest worship. My friends, many people today don't Even professing Christians, I think, recognize the worthiness of Jesus for worship. Like he's not just your servant who came and died in your place and you say thank you very much and move on. He is worthy of your whole life. Worship, love, uh, care, following, submitting to him as Lord, all of that don't treat him like judas or somewhere in between our call is to be more like mary than like anyone else to recognize that he was worthy he is worthy of our highest worship as he was worthy of her highest worship now jesus became aware in his human consciousness that there was a dispute about her action i say that kind of guardedly became aware Jesus, as the divine Logos, didn't become aware ever of anything. He knew everything instantaneously and simultaneously. But in trying to explain how that worked with his human consciousness, we might suggest that the Logos uh, disclosed certain things to the human consciousness of Jesus, but not other things at various times. How that exactly works, we'll figure out more <laughs> later, I suppose. Um, So he confronted them right away. In her defense, they were entirely out of place for troubling this woman, giving her a hard time. She had done a good work, but they, for the good work, trashed her. Now, one reason that it's so appropriate for her to do what she did was that the Lord had a very short time left on the earth. He was worthy of one last pouring out of worship, no matter the expense. There would be comparably an almost inexhaustible amount of time for the disciples to give to the poor. But there were only two more days until the Passover and Jesus would be killed. The Lord said, "'You have the poor with you always.'" Me, however, you don't have, always. Now, on this statement, you will have the poor with you always, or you have the poor with you always, there is no way that the human race can falsify that statement. Try as we might, war on poverty, trillions of dollars, there will always be poor people on the earth until at least the kingdom comes. Why? Because there is sin. And sin leads to oppression. And sin leads to natural disasters. Sin leads to divorce. Sin leads to laziness. All of these factors lead directly into poverty. Okay? So you're not going to get rid of poverty unless you get rid of sin. You're certainly not going to get rid of sin in this age or this side of heaven. So. Uh, Both worship and helping those in need, uh, particularly in the church family, are things Christians are to do, both. So the Lord is not pitting one against the other. He's saying there's opportunities aplenty for you to minister to the poor and limited opportunities in this context for you to worship the Lord in this extravagant way. But worshiping the Lord is more important, particularly in this situation where he is about to be killed. The anointing that the woman did, the Lord says in verse 12, was for my burial. You might say to yourself, well, that's a little creepy. I mean, being anointed before you're dead for your burial. How would you like that? I mean, that's like the uh, mortician coming to your house before you pass to pre-anoint you, pre-prepare you for your embalming. I mean, think of the psychology of what this does to a person to know that in two days they're going to suffer awfully and die. That is it's too much to take in, in a way. Jesus would not have a proper burial, even for a common person, much less the king of all creation. This act of worship was prompted by God in preparation for Jesus' human body to be put into the tomb, hastily so. Remember, they had to do it quickly. They didn't have time to uh, have a state funeral, have the viewing and all that sort of thing and whatever, they just took the body down and wrapped it up with some things and right into the tomb he went. Jesus then informs the audience that what she did will be repeated, recounted whenever the good news of salvation is shared throughout the entire world. It's in the scriptures not only to remind us of the beauty and priority of devoted worship, but as a memorial to the woman herself. I I call that to your attention because it says that Jesus himself, this passage is not just in here to commend to us worship. He says, Assuredly, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. that elevates her and her example to us. It's not just a memorial to Jesus, but it's a memorial to her. And uh, when God's servants do good things, they are to be honored because honor is due to them as well. Of course, not the same honor as Jesus receives, not even close. You know, reverence or offer, you know, Latria to this Mary or any other human being. We don't worship them as we worship God, but we do give honor to whom honor is due. Her faith and dedication are an example for us, and Matthew and the other Bible authors were reminded of this by the Spirit of God, and what they wrote was inspired, was superintended by him, so that everything that they wrote about this was just what God wanted to be communicated to us, down through the centuries. Now, finally, verses fourteen to sixteen, and we will close with these very briefly. One of the twelve, Judas, went to the priests. We know that he kind of sold access to Jesus for uh, some money. In contrast to the woman's worship, right next door to it, here you have this great contrast with Judas's greed for money. He did not get his hands on the large sum from selling the perfume, so he went elsewhere to get some cash. He sought out the chief priests and offered to betray Jesus if they would give him some money. How wicked. But then, get this, the priests agreed to do it. Boy, with priests like that, you know, who needs enemies? <laughs> um, terrible, evil all the way around. Now, they gave him the pri- agreed upon, I guess, and gave him the price of a slave. Well, it doesn't does it say that here? No, they weighed out or counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So he sought an opportunity to betray him. But we know that the price of a slave was around was thirty pieces of silver. So that thirty pieces tells us, you know, what the valuation was. Now I did a quick calculation um, based on a couple of sources somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred and fifty dollars in today's. Valuation, if it's you know silver of a certain amount, and this is you know, 59 cents per gram today, roughly, and of course, it fluctuates all the time. But say it's $100 to $400, somewhere in there, 250, okay? Um, in Exodus 21, that was the price set. Uh, and, and this also calls to mind the passage in Zechariah. Uh, let me see here, Zechariah chapter 12 in verses, or sorry, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, and it says this. Um, so, so it was, uh, it said, then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages. And if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. Princely there is, um, is satire, is sarcasm. Um, they, uh, they didn't think his, this uh, prophet's work was worth much, not worth much. So uh, he took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter, for the potter. Now, I won't go into that any further, but uh, the connection seems to be uh, unavoidable in my mind to make that connection between Exodus 21, the price of the slave, Zechariah 11, and then what was done here in Matthew 26. This was not much compared to the 300 denarii, which was about a year's wages. For a measly few bucks, I say in my notes, Judas agreed to betray Jesus, to kill a man, a most wonderful man. He valued the Lord no more, and the priests also, valued him no more than a common slave. He was contemptible in their eyes, worth nothing. And for the woman who was not in a palace, not in royalty, not a scribe, not an elder, she gave a year's wages to worship God. How much is too much? I don't think you can say there's too much. It's all a small amount to God. God. I mean, you know, as I said this morning, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and everything else. So if it's a year's wages or 10 years wages or you spend your whole life, you give your whole life in service and vocational service to the Lord, uh, it's, he's, worth, he's worth it. He's worth all of it. So these 16 verses set the stage for chapters 26 and 27 of Matthew's gospel. The rest of the text is going to work out show how it works out that Jesus was betrayed, how he was crucified, and then how he was buried. And uh, we have to wait till 28 to see the glorious conclusion. So hopefully that is a blessing. Uh, First 16 verses, Matthew chapter 26. May God seal those words in our hearts and help us to uh, follow the example of Mary and to eschew the greedy nature of Judas. Father, I ask that you will bless our uh, evening uh, tonight with family, with our friends here as we fellowship together for a few moments before we leave. For those that are online, I pray for them as well, not being able to see them or know them or or feel the the demeanor or the atmosphere in their home. I just trust that uh, they have been edified and strengthened tonight in the most holy word. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. And we are dismissed. We trust with the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good night.